Welcome to On the Docket with the National Drug Court Resource Center. And I'm your host, Anna Kuzman. But first, a quick word from what some might call our sponsors. The National Drug Court Resource Center, also known as NDCRC, is housed in the Justice Programs Office, a center in the School of Public Affairs at American University. JPO provides research, technical assistance, training, program evaluation, and capacity building services to jurisdictions, organizations, and government agencies throughout the U.S. and internationally. The National Drug Court Resource Center is part of the Bureau of Justice Assistance at U.S. Department of Justice's Drug Court Initiative. NDCRC is the go-to place for drug court practitioners to access a wide variety of resources to make their programs as effective as possible. The ideas and thoughts expressed in this podcast do not directly reflect those of the Justice Programs Office, American University, the Bureau of Justice Assistance, or the Department of Justice. I thought I remember reading that you had a patient who tried Vivitrol and it was life-saving, but then you had other clients of yours who they basically replaced their dependency on oxycodone with the dependency on suboxone. So basically they were abusing suboxone, which I think you've mentioned. Mm -hmm. So what are the best options for patients like that who are abusing MAT? So in treatment court, these there's a lot of structure in oversight with each individual participant in the program. Part of that is they're providing UAs every uh, several times a week sometimes. And so we're able to, to the best of our ability, and nothing is infallible, but the best of our ability, we monitor between the medical doctors, between the treatment team, between the UA place. We can tell if they're properly taking their medications or not. And uh, so we monitor that as part of their panels on their, on their UAs. And, of course, if there's other things popping up because – you, you can be eliminated. The doctor can stop your suboxone if there's dishonest behaviors going on. And so they have to be, they have strict requirements and protocols that they have to follow to be part of a legitimate medically assisted treatment program in the communication between the doctor, the counselor, and the treatment team is critical in monitoring that. And you know, the results are is if we see any deviation or criminality in what they're doing, they can be taken off of the suboxone, you know, and possibly which may end up lead to their termination from an adult treatment court program, which would result in their going back in the Department of Correction system. And I guess the same is true for the reverse, where they might be taking medication like suboxone or buprenorphine and not going to treatment, in which case you would also know because that's part of the requirements for drug court. Mm -hmm. So that would be the reverse of that, Mm -hmm. too. So kind of like a checks and balances, I guess, between the two. So what do you say to people who are still critical of it? Go get educated. That was the bottom line for me. And I know I use the word I was ignorant. A lot of times that's kind of an offensive word sometimes, and people can become very defensive in their posture when – say, you're ignorant, go learn about it. But the, that, that's the truth of the matter. I didn't understand it. See, I was just seeing the people that were abusing it because you can develop a dependency to uh, this medication. It, 
it can become physically and psychologically addictive. However, I was just seeing the abuse portion of it that was unregulated, untreated, that they were just getting it off the streets and using it in the same way that some other medications that are available out there that people get their hands on and they use as mood such as Adderall and drugs like that, they can be used and become abused and become addicted to it. But when I saw it from a different perspective, because I had never worked with a doctor who ran a legitimate medically assisted treatment program, and I just saw the abuse side of it. I didn't see the compliance side of it. And so when I saw the compliance side of it, it was a completely different result when they were engaging in treatment, when they were assigned caseworkers, when they had the external motivators and supervision, which, and then the oversight of the doctor and their MAT program, I've seen tremendous results with it. These people are restoring their lives. And again, I'm not a fan of somebody who doesn't address their core issues, their behavior problems, their mental health issues and stuff, to think that it's their, their life issues are going to resolve by taking a pill or medication. That doesn't happen. The therapeutic side of it is critical in their success of being involved in a medically assisted treatment program. So was there something in particular that happened that convinced you or was it just, you know, observing and witnessing the people whose lives have been totally transformed? No, it took place at the conference. And, you know, I had an opportunity. Well, I was challenged on a lot of my moral modality type of thinking. I was very emotional about the Suboxone because, again, I didn't understand it. And I was emotionally involved in it because of the patients I'd previously worked with were abusing buprenorphine, but they weren't part of a legitimate, medically directed MAT program. And so, you know, my idea was just, you're just selling them another addiction. And that's not true. That's not true. If it is done the way it should be done, it's highly effective. Yeah, it was just the material. I had an opportunity to learn. I probably went in there with my feathers ruffled a little bit, looking to get be on the fight about this. I had to humble myself and listen to the people I've only, I had only been a counselor for four or five years, and uh, I had to take a step back and say, listen, these guys have been, these guys are uh, PhDs, they're medical doctors, they've been working in the addiction field for, for decades, and my own recovery, humility is important to me, uh, my willingness to learn and be open to new ideas and thoughts developing a relationship with a specific medical provider that worked with the courts, that worked with the treatment facility. It was just a completely different experience. I know I keep saying it's highly effective, but that's just what I have seen. I've worked with many, many patients who've been on Suboxone. And when it's done appropriately, it provides society with a person who is a contributing member in living life and recovery. So... I think that that's what we want as society. Absolutely. So, Can you talk at all about any old policies that Gateway had about MAT? A lot of that came from me being, and several of the other counselors too, that we were very adamant about abstinence. 
abstinence, abstinence, abstinence. That's the only way you can achieve recovery. And that still is highly true and accurate. However, you know, treatment of addiction is fairly new science. It hasn't been around that long. And, you know, we're still learning how to effectively and efficiently treat individuals suffering from an addiction. But there was a lot of counselors, including myself, that, again, had never had the opportunity to work with a medical provider who had a very professional and ethical buprenorphine type of program. We had just seen the individual coming in. He said, man, I'm addicted to Suboxone. I've been getting it on the street. And so all we saw was, oh, here's something else for somebody to get addicted in. And you're telling me that just because you get a prescription for it, well, isn't that how all our opiate problems began in the first place? In a lot of ways, as people obtained prescription form and became addicted to these substances. And so we were looking at it from that perspective. We just never had the experience of working with a legitimate provider who who worked with us. And so I was adamantly against it because that's what I just saw it as. I believed it was just another addiction. You know, it, it's different. Yes, you can become physically dependent on it. You do. However, you're not taking it in the way that is part of addictive behavior. It's not being abused. And when I'm saying when it's being done properly, it's being monitored by medical professionals, by therapeutic professionals, uh, treatment team, support staff. And when there's that much oversight and structure and somebody is willing to do what they need to do and fully participate honestly in a program like that, then you start seeing incredible restoration in people's lives. They start going back to work. Like I said, uh, they start repairing relationships and marriages, and they start being able to come out of the homeless shelters and get their own place to live. So, yeah, I just think when, when you have the appropriate combination of therapy and medically assisted treatment, I think where we are in our treatment of addictions today, and I'm not saying everybody needs medically assisted treatment, and we evaluate those people to try to determine who's a good candidate for it and who is not. But for those that are good candidates, I've seen way more success and failures with it. It doesn't even compare. Can you speak a little bit about where you see gaps in the treatment field and if you have, if you can offer any solutions to those challenges, what any ideas you might have for that? Funding, money, as everybody was always going to talk about, we need we need money to. Again, this is a long conversation to have in a perfect in a perfect world. If somebody, depending on the criteria they meet for what level of care they're to be placed in, if somebody is in active addiction to like heroin or methamphetamine, more than likely they need to be in an inpatient facility. We need to streamline the process to get people in because when you're in addiction, you're very impulsive. And sometimes the window to get a person into treatment is a very, very, very short window. And if you tell them, yeah, we can get you placed, but there's not a bed available for three to four weeks, we probably are never gonna see that patient again. They're going to be out using, and I personally, I've lost people who have gone out there, used, and died, and directly related to their addiction. 
Because they were waiting to seek treatment. Because they were waiting for a bed date to uh, get into treatment. So we certainly can do a lot better in streamlining that. So I guess in a perfect world, if somebody walks in, they said, I'm ready to do it. I'm ready to go to treatment. We can say, okay, let's, let's take a look at our resources and have them on a bus or whatever and get them into treatment like within a 24-hour period get them into detox. Again, detox centers are very difficult. We've had troubles here in the city of Great Falls where there was nowhere to detox. You know, a lot of the time patients had to say they were suicidal just to get in to detox or else the emergency rooms would turn them away. They had greater priorities. They had other things to, and so there was nothing that they could provide on that level. They're different today. We actually got an addictions doctors come to work in Great Falls, and some of that is changing, thank goodness. The other detox unit here in town is at the inpatient treatment center, but they don't take Medicaid patients, and 95% of the people who need treatment don't have any insurance or they're on Medicaid, so they can't use it. They can't go and be in there, so it's a money thing. The success in somebody's treatment is the resources that are available to offer them step-down treatment also. So you begin at the very highest level of care and you begin working your way down to intensive outpatient. Well, actually, I guess in a perfect world, if somebody goes into intensive outpatient, and I think personally this would increase our long-term success rates for people, you go to intensive inpatient, from there you go to a sober living house, which the availability of sober living beds is just ridiculous. They're, they just, they're not funded. They're not available. And so the people who literally, a lot of these inpatient treatment programs don't last for more than 30 days. And somebody who has been in active addiction for one year, five years, 10 years, 15 years, you don't get cured from addiction. This is a process that you have to relearn everything and how to live your life and how to think. And ideally, to have more sober living homes available that people can transition to and spend some time there in a sober, safe community and then transition to intensive outpatient and then transition to outpatient. But, you know, I mean, there are huge challenges. We get women who come in who are pregnant and they're addicted to substances. And the treatment centers won't allow them to come in because they're too high risk. And so they get rejected and there's no place there's, you have a a pregnant woman who says, I need help, I don't want to use, I know what it'll do to my baby, but I can't stop on my own. And so we're trying to place them and we have the treatment facility saying, we can't take them, she's too high risk. And that's so crazy because it's so hard to get somebody to seek help when they need it. And so you're just turning them away based on resources. Yeah, and it's like, and it's so sad and heartbreaking and frustrating because it's like, okay, good luck. You know, and something bad is going to come out of that situation. That baby is going to be affected because she's going to continue to use. Mm -hmm. And... So not only is the mother's life at risk, that child's life is at risk, and they want help, and nobody will give it to them. Within our society, there is this, 
this disconnect uh, with this moral modality towards addiction and mothers who are struggling with addiction and people passing judgment on them and saying, you must not love your child because you can't stop using. And I have met very few mothers who are in active addiction that don't love their children. They can be in active addiction and they would still give their life for their child in a heartbeat, but they can't stop using. That's how powerful this disease is. That's the effects it has on the brain and how you process information, your lack of impulse control. It messes your brain up. I often, can, I often refer to addiction like a traumatic brain injury because that's what it does to your brain and people don't understand that. Where is the compassion and the empathy for that? These are mothers, these are brothers, these are sisters and daughters. I, and I get emotional when I talk about this because I have two daughters and I thank God every day that you know there were certain people that didn't give up on me and that were willing to give me another chance. I can't, and you know, that's part of why I'm a counselor today is to be that person to give people hope who don't have hope. So people can change their lives. Unfortunately, this disease takes a lot of lives and it affects a lot of people in our society. But still, until we start recognizing how severe this problem is and what we have to do as a country and as a society to address this problem to get people better, you know, we're gonna to continue to have these problems. You can build as many jails as you want to build and hire as many cops as you want to hire. It's not going to affect the addiction problem in this country. We need the funding for sober living homes, for treatment centers, you know, outpatient and inpatient treatment center. We need to increase the availability to people who need intervention and treatment. And also for family members that also require support because you know, yeah, sure, addicts suffer, but their families suffer just as much. I spent 20 years in law enforcement, in and out of the courts, testifying and taking prisoners to and from court and, you know, fulfilling my role as law enforcement officer. And, you know, to be honest with you, my perception was this, these courts are about punishment, to make people pay for the crimes that they did. That was my experience for 20 years, justice. And when I was introduced to adult treatment court to see how this court operates, it blew me away. I, I didn't understand it. I was in shock because you actually had this treatment team. And it wasn't about punishment. It was about opportunities for addressing the elephant in the room. The issue was the addiction. Yes, they're responsible for their behaviors, but what is the driving force behind this? It's their addiction, the way they think and the way they behave. And so getting introduced into a court, it was all about holding them accountable. And there's certainly consequences if they don't do what they're supposed to do, but providing them the structure and the resources to learn how to live life in recovery so they're not coming back into the system. Because in our court system, you know, and everybody knows that people may get 15 years, two years they go in and they're out there being paroled in three years, and they have done nothing but become better criminals, and they've done nothing to address their thinking and their behaviors or their addiction. Their addictions never went away. They were just temporarily in remission. And so when they come back out into our society, they're doing exactly what they did before. 
even when you have people that really want to change their life and they caught a felony charge for drug possession, they go out and they're trying to get a job or housing and people are rejecting them again and again and again. Eventually they just say, screw it, I'm just going to go back to how I was living. Right. At least I was numb the whole time. At a certain point, the society is also playing into the perpetuation of the cycle. Absolutely. Even if we dump resources on resources into them. You can point as many fingers as you want, but at the end of the day, you're going to keep getting the same results if you're always looking to blame somebody. Didn't Einstein say the definition of insanity is doing the same thing repeatedly and expecting different outcomes or something like that? I thought that's what I came up with. (laughs) (laughs) No, yes, definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Yeah. yeah. So I just had one last question for you, unless you had anything else to add. But I was curious, did you ever repair those relationships with your old colleagues in law enforcement? You know, some I certainly have. There were certain individuals that, you know, and I look back at them and I don't blame them, but there was several pretty special friends that I have that were compassionate. They were as compassionate and empathetic as what they believed themselves to be as a law enforcement officer. And yet sometimes then when we're put in those situations where we can practice what we preach, a lot of people don't have that within them. I had several of my police friends and sheriff friends, law enforcement friends, certainly that were supportive and were empathetic and compassionate because they saw the suffering that I was enduring and my family was, instead of basically abandoning me and getting away from me. I don't hold any resentments towards them because I understand people's behaviors and the way they think, but the individuals that I have maintained relationships with, I have a great amount of respect and gratitude towards. And they're they're good men and women, and they were kind and compassionate and caring and loving. And, you know, there's not a lot of them, but I certainly still have some of those guys in my life, and I'm thankful for that. So thank God for second chances and sometimes third and fourth chances. None of us are perfect in this society. Everybody's got skeletons in their closet. A lot of the times we wear masks out in the public to pretend like we don't have any issues going on in our life. But the truth of the matter is, there's no perfect families. There's no perfect individuals. We all have crosses to carry. It's important that we start taking care of each other instead of trying to lift ourselves up above one another. I think we would have a much better place to live in this country if everybody started believing in that and then walking the walk instead of just talking the talk. You can't say you're a good person and do nothing to show compassion and empathy towards your fellow human being. In 20 years of law enforcement, I had the opportunities to work with all different agencies, FBI, DEA, the Secret Service, helped guard Al Gore once, but sheriff's office, police officers, border patrol, customs, you name it, I had the opportunity to work with them. I also, in my relatively short career, the last eight years of working with addicts and their families, those individuals who struggle with addiction have just as much character and empathy and compassion and goodness in them as any FBI agent I ever worked with or any police officer or any border patrolman. They're good people and they need our help. I want to thank the Cascade County Drug Court team, specifically Michelle Copney and Jeff Falk, for sharing their thoughts and stories. 
You can download the episodes from this podcast series through the iTunes podcast store or on ndcrc.org. Just search NDCRC in the podcast store. I also want to encourage you to check out the National Drug Court Resource Center website at ndcrc.org if you are looking for any resources or information on problem-solving courts. We have an extensive clearinghouse of research pieces and operational documents for practitioners working in problem-solving courts. We also have an interactive map and database of all operational drug courts in the country. If you work in a juvenile drug treatment court, please check out our website at au-jdtc.org. The Resource Center is funded in part through a grant from the Bureau of Justice Assistance, Office of Justice Programs, U.S. Department of Justice. Neither the U.S. Department of Justice nor any of its components operate, control, are responsible for, or necessarily endorse this podcast or the NDCRC website, including, without limitation, its content, technical infrastructure, and policies, and any services or tools provided. Podcast artwork, mixing, and editing by me, Anna Kuzman. Original music by Peter Grusser, titled Skipping in the No Standing Zone.